Good morning. It is Monday, October 19th, and this is Community Pulse, your local report on the coronavirus pandemic in mid-Missouri. You can catch Community Pulse Mondays and Wednesdays at 9 a.m. on KOPN, and all episodes can be found online at KOPN.org and on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Today on Community Pulse, we'll clarify the misleading statement recently gaining traction about the efficacy of face masks, and we'll dig a little deeper into the immune-boosting benefits of zinc and vitamin D. Our host, Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, is a local family physician and host of Your Health Matters here on KOPN. She joins us via phone this morning. Good morning, Dr. Alleman. Good morning, Mallory, and good morning to Central Missouri. I first want to send out a blessing and a, a, for whatever it's worth, a, a blessing of uh, protection on all of our uh, elementary school, uh, Columbia Public School students, faculty, staff, administrators, parents, everybody who uh, are dealing with this new change of everybody going back to or the people who've decided to chose an in-state school to going to um, being actually in person. And I know that lots of people are having to make lots of changes. People are concerned about their safety, excited about being able to resume this really important community function. Um, And I think a lot of people are a little bit confused and concerned that we're doing it in light of rising numbers in central Missouri. So, yeah, first of that. And that leads me to the numbers. So Boone County numbers are slowly increasing. Trying really hard to not have any judgmental assessment efforts on these things. So there is a um, gradual rise in cases. We had a more rapid rise in the middle of August with then a decrease in cases in daily cases. So there were 27 cases yesterday and 51 on Saturday. And I keep forgetting sometimes or not realizing which things uh, people are not. things people are following and how they're looking at it. Typically, Saturdays are our our highest number day, and Sundays are usually our lowest number day as far as test results. Our five-day average, um, and I'm using five-day average because the people who are doing the Boone County dashboard, thank you very much for your incredible work, are using a five-day average. So a seven-day average would be a different statistic, and it would be a little bit more useful, I think, but I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just saying that I'm using it because I'm not going to recalculate all that. So the five-day average was 60, and that's the highest since um, September the 20th when we were coming down from that um, increase in cases in mid-August that correlated in time with the return of college and university students to central Missouri. So this is concerning, especially in context that in Missouri, there were 26, 86 new cases on a Sunday. So we've been hovering between 1,500 and 2,000 new cases a day for a while. And so for us to see that um, more cases uh, is concerning. Um, And the seven-day average is uh, over 2,000 to 2,037. Deaths, you know, we had been seeing episodes of increasing cases without adding additional deaths, both in Boone County and in Missouri. I mean, more people were dying, but not an increase in daily numbers, but that seems to be ending. So uh, we're up to 14 deaths in Boone County and 15 in Cole, six in Callaway. In Missouri, there were 44 um, new cases um, in the past 24 hours. And uh, Matthew Holloway points out that we've had 
more than one death per hour in Missouri since uh, the beginning of October, which is a little, I mean, that's, it's what it is. That's I'm a stark, try to stay it's a stark statistic. Yeah. I, I, I am having increasing concern because, honestly, the weather's so good. You know, we've been talking about how cases were going to rise, deaths were likely going to rise, as two things happen. One is the weather gets colder and people move indoors, and as influenza moves into the community and other respiratory illnesses, which are going to do two things. They're going to further obscure who actually has COVID. So now we're going to have more people with cough, shortness of breath, fever, um, malaise, feeling bad, um, achiness, uh, fatigue, brain fog, um, sore throat, um, uh, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, uh, change in smell and taste. And then we're going to need to be testing more people. Because of that, we're going to have a hard time knowing who should get tested. And the other thing is that it just makes sense that those respiratory illnesses, if you have them both at the same time in the same person, that that is not going to help you get over it. We don't know exactly how influenza and COVID-19 are going to interact in the same person. But given what we know about other co-infections and things going together, we, it is my understanding I've never known of a of one respiratory illness that helped a person get over this, another one. So I would think that this is going to be harder on the people. Um, so and then I received an interesting forwarded email from someone within the university system about a, um, a webinar that's going to happen hosted by the Boone County Medical Society tomorrow looking at the situation in Missouri. And one of the things that they mentioned was that there's a, um, a public health uh, student who has done a, done a survey and has noted that most of the counties surrounding Boone County, where the people who live and work there shop, do business, and if they're sick and need hospitalization are often hospitalized in Boone County. Very few of those uh, counties have universal mask ordinances. Um, Boone County does not have a universal mask ordinance. And, um, and most of them, unlike Boone County, have spent zero dollars of their CARES Act funds on their public health infrastructure. So these are, um, uh, this is information that gives us information that we are going to be facing challenges at responding to this um, situation through the winter. And nationally, Missouri is number six or seven for rise in cases, and I think that that is percent increase, and that sometimes it is correlated to our population. Um, and our RT, the uh, statistical number that looks at how quickly this is spreading, how many people on average does one infected person infect, um, is uh, 1.06. Any number above one is going to be exponential increases. Any number below one is going to be exponential decreases. Only nine states and territories in the United States have RTs less than one. So um, as a nation, as a state, and as a, uh, as a region, we are facing challenges even though our Boone County numbers are, are slowly increasing. Okay. Questions about that, Mallory? Shall we move on to zinc and vitamin D? Um, 
I well, I do have a question. It's going back a little ways to when you were talking about um, having two respiratory viruses at the same time. Mm-hmm. And yeah. earlier, um, you know, in the spring, when you know the flu was still going around, um, oh. you know, I know people who got tested for influenza, and then they knew right. that they had influenza, but their doctors didn't recommend that they get tested for COVID. I mean, there was there's a whole lot around that, right? There wasn't as many available oh, tests yeah. back then, and all of that. But so going into this fall, I mean, if people are experiencing those symptoms, should they really be getting tested for flu and coronavirus at the same time? <laughs> This is such a great question, Mallory, and I really, it's why I really enjoy doing this um, show with the great uh, thinkers at KOPN, <laughs> um, because I hadn't really thought about that. And that's a great point, because you're right, in the spring, when we had limited testing, what we were doing was what we're calling a flu with reflex COVID. So we would do one swab, so the person only needed to get the swab in their nose one time, and then that test, that sample would be sent to the lab, and the lab would first test it for influenza. And if it was ne- if it was if influenza was detected, then we didn't do any further testing. Hmm. <clears throat> and if influenza was not detected, then they would test for COVID-19. Okay. And I know that now um, there's an increasing availability of what they're calling respiratory uh, pathogen panels. And so we would do, again, one swab, one sample to the lab, I think. I don't want to promise that, but it's in the past, that's been what it's been, is one swab to the lab, and then they just test for influenza A, influenza B, COVID-19, para-influenza, a bunch of respiratory illnesses I didn't realize we were testing for, <clears throat> to try to get a sense about um, what somebody has. And I think that those panels, I don't know, but I think those panels are all going to be, you know, if we're going to begin to see whether people are multiply infected. Okay. Okay. But in general, in medicine, we have this principle that once you can explain all of what's going on with somebody with one diagnosis and you have made that diagnosis, we don't look further. Mm-hmm. So, for example, somebody comes in with fatigue and a fever. That could be the presentation of leukemia. But once we've diagnosed that they have, um, uh, say, strep throat, um, we say, yep, that's strep throat. And we don't keep looking for leukemia in everybody that comes in. So. We're going to be in an interesting diagnostic dilemma in the, in the, this fall. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Yeah. yeah. So should we switch gears and talk a little bit about, yeah. um, do you want to talk about the mask statement that's kind of been going around that 80%? No, I want to go quickly over zinc and vitamin okay. D because we've just talked about the thing. And I think that when we talk about these numbers and the challenges and what about that, I think that I then want to talk about Let's see about some things we could do. So we are beginning to, so first vitamin D. We have um, increasing studies um, that show that vitamin D is helpful. So the first level of studies that we do that are easiest to do is to sort of like take levels of people's blood, of these vitamins in people's blood uh, who are already sick or not sick and compare that. So it's association, not causation. And we have several studies that show that people with lower levels of vitamin D are more likely to get COVID-19 and more likely to do poorly with COVID-19. But we don't know whether there's some unknown variable, and so then we need an intervention study. But we also had an intervention study from previous years where we actually gave people vitamin D in a randomized controlled trial and showed that they were less likely to get a respiratory illness at all. This was before COVID-19. So people who take vitamin D through the winter are less likely to get sick with a respiratory illness. 
And it's about twofold. Like you increase, decrease your risk by about 50%. And then they, we, find, we recently have a study that shows that um, people, it's a fairly small study. So there were 50 people given the uh, vitamin D and 25 not given vitamin D. There was one, and these were all hospitalized patients. There was one person in the intervention group, one out of 50 um, went to the ICU and 13 out of the 26 not treated, went to the ICU. So that's a big difference between, you know, 2%, one out of 50, and 50%. So um, we do not have an intervention study based on the population, but I don't think we have any reason not to encourage people to take 2,000 international units of vitamin D every day. It's a very cheap uh, vitamin. And even if you get a lot of sun during the summer, we are now in a place where there is not enough UV light for in Missouri for people to make um, appreciable amounts of vitamin D. So, and there is also some reason to believe that vitamin D would work. Vitamin D works um, to help our immune system respond appropriately. So if you're decreased in vitamin D, you tend to not respond enough initially in an illness and then over respond later in an illness, which is exactly one of the problems we're seeing with people who don't do well with COVID-19. So we, and apparently Anthony Fauci is taking 6,000 international units of vitamin D a day. So I, I, and I am taking 2,000 international units of vitamin D a day and encouraging my family members uh, to do the the same. And if people think that they are concerned about that, they can ask for a vitamin D level from their primary care provider and have their levels, uh, their supplementation guided by levels. The problem is that a vitamin D test take costs about $100. And so, uh, and vitamin D, a year's worth of vitamin D costs about $10. So it probably makes sense to just supplement everyone. And then zinc is now in the news. uh, it is also an immune modulator, and it's a direct antiviral. So um, the cell, uh, so having adequate levels of zinc in your cell apparently makes it harder for viruses to replicate in the cell. And now we have two studies, one in Spain and one in Israel. I'm not sure the location of the second study. Forgive me for that. Um, that correlate low zinc levels with poor outcomes in COVID-19, and we do not have an intervention study yet, and I'm hoping that we will soon. Um, Zinc in the diet is in um, oysters, in a significant amounts in beef, in sort of marginal amounts, and then in other things in amounts where you'd have to really consume a lot to get uh, the recommended daily allowance, which is 8 milligrams a day. And most supplementation is running about 20 to 30 milligrams a day. And uh, zinc toxicity is um, possible, but it is rare at those doses. So now, do you have any questions about that before we move on to this lovely controversy about masks? No, I don't think so. Go ahead. Okay. So um, there have been people online who have stated, made this statement, and then it was repeated by the president and then repeated again by the president. And that is something like 80% of people who wear masks get COVID. And the question is like, whoo, where did that come from? And my first thought about that is it can't be true. 
like, you know, down is up, up is down. And not because of who said it and not because I believe mask wearing works, but because statistically it's just not possible. There is no group of people who have 80% positivity rate that I know of. So there can't be a subgroup of them that is also 80% positive. And I am having a hard time. I was practicing trying to argue this on Facebook, but I just wanted to say that um, to my to my brain and to my friend's brain to like numbers, the first thought was, well, that can't be. Even if I don't believe in math and even if I uh, want to vote for Donald Trump as president, it just can't be. And so how can that be? How Where am I coming from with that? So um, when we look at case numbers of documented people with cases, um, there are about 8 million cases in the United States, give or take. And there's a little bit of, there's a few over 300 million people in the United States. And I rounded those numbers so that the math is easy. And that leaves us to about 2.6% of our U.S. population is positive for COVID documented. And then we know that more people are, are positive than um, that are actually diagnosed because lots of people don't get tested. They are either asymptomatic, mildly symptomatic, got really sick, but for whatever reason don't have access to testing, got tested and the test was negative, even though they were, they were sick. And so the question is how many people really have had it. And so in the summer, some several smart people said, let's look at, let's do some random sampling of the population and look at antibody levels. So we draw blood and look to see whether the body recognizes this particular virus uh, that has mounted an immune response to it. And those are showing around 10% of the U.S. population has had COVID. So 80% don't have COVID, not of any not of any subgroup. It would have to be very restricted and not worth statistically saying that. So the question is, where did the number come from? And it actually came from a CDC report, from the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, which is a very, um, like, it, it, it's an insider document. You shouldn't say it that way. It is a document that is read by people who really care about public health, and it is uh, publicly available on the CDC website and always has been, and it's been a place where I, it's a reliable source for me of what's going on with public health? Who got measles in the measles epidemic? So um, this was uh, looking at, again, data from July, um, and it was published by 25 authors of the IVY network investigations and the CDC COVID-19 response team. So <clears throat> reputable people. What they were trying to, what they did was they looked at 154 people who had positive COVID-19 tests, let's see, um, in a particular healthcare setting, and they compared them with <clears throat> controls who had, there were 160 controls, who were also symptomatic and tested. So these both groups were, had symptoms, and the cases were the people who tested positive, and the controls were the people who tested negative by the nasal swab or uh, PCR testing. Um, and then they compared those two groups. How are those two groups different? And this is a question like, how are we getting this? If I test positive, how am I different from a person who didn't test positive? So close contact with a person uh, with known COVID-19 was more commonly reported among case patients, 42%. 
than among control patients, 14%. And case patients were more likely to have reported dining in a restaurant, any area designated by uh, the restaurant, including indoor patio and outdoor seating, in the two weeks preceding illness. So I don't know if you all re you remember hearing this study, like if you had gone, people who tested positive were twice as likely as people who tested negative to have eaten in a restaurant in the two weeks before they got sick. Um, or going to a bar or coffee shop, four times more likely. So, um, and those were those are places where um, mask wearing is difficult. So, they looked at various other variables, and um, there's a table in that report. And so, on um, page uh, 1261 of of the MMWR September 11th, 2020. Now. I did not read all 1,200 pages of this report. I just read the three or four pages that are related to this study. Um, and you can access this without having to page through 1,200 pages. So at the end of the table, the last thing was the reported use of cloth, face covering, or mask 14 days before the illness onset. And they looked at case patients and control patients, and this was their own reported use. And I'm just going to say that many people over-report doing something that they've been told is a good idea and under-report making what we consider what's commonly believed to be unwise health decisions. So if you ask pregnant women if they smoke and then test their urine for um, the breakdown products of tobacco, of nicotine, uh, Many, many more people are non-smoker are smokers than want to tell you that. So I and I there is some data that mask wearing is the same thing that more people report mask wearing themselves than seems to be true in the population. So that being said, um, cases people who turned positive, who were positive. 70% uh, of them, 70.6% of them reported always wearing a face mask. And 14.4% of them rec reported often wearing a, a face mask. And case control, 74.2% of them reported always wearing a face mask and 14.5% reported often wearing a face mask. So there isn't really much of a statistical, um, there is not a statistically uh, um, significant difference in those two groups of their self-reported use of face masks. And I think that this is, we think this is where this, this data piece came from that is now twisted. So 70% of people who got COVID in this one study reported wearing a face mask. And I think that got flipped around to saying 80% of the people who wear a face mask get COVID. But I think what we can say is that most people who got COVID in this study also reported often wearing a face mask. And that is, you know, concerning enough that we didn't see a significant difference in those two groups. I would love to see something where we could actually look at actual face mask use rather than reported face mask use. Um, but anyway, so this was looking at trying to figure out, uh, and then the one thing that they did notice, there was a statistic difference in statistical, almost statistically significant difference in the their reporting of what 
they noted other people were doing in the, so of the people who got COVID, who went to a restaurant in the two weeks before their illness, and when asked what were other people doing, more of them noted that, that those people, that no people were in the restaurant were wearing face masks. So there appears to be an almost statistically significant, and so, so 20% of cases reported they dined in a restaurant where nobody was wearing, nobody or a few people were wearing a mask compared to 2% of the control. So that the p-value for that was 0.03, so it's not quite statistically significant, but there was a trend towards eating in a restaurant where no one else was wearing a face mask uh, seemed to be a risk factor for getting COVID. So it's an interesting thing that this study that seemed to show that dining in restaurants and going to coffee shops and bars were statistically significantly associated with getting COVID gets quoted as face masks don't work, which is not at all what this study shows. Yeah, and the lead author of the study has come out and said that this research was actually kind of meant to be mask neutral is the word that he used. And, you know, the data wasn't designed to argue for or against mask wearing. And so it's interesting that, you know, that component of the study is being picked up, you know, and, and reiterated by, you know, so many people. It's just, yeah. Um, we do have. A, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, we have a listener uh, question but, that's related to mask use, but I want you to finish okay, your great. thought. So I just want to say that it's a point of not of it's really important that the most reliable part of any research study is the answer to the question that they were trying to ask mm-hmm. with the study, and that we do gather lots of other information. But that sort of trailing extra unrelated data is the least reliable in the study because it's not what they designed the study to ask. So it's very interesting that this study was not designed to ask the question about mask wearing. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. So listener question. Okay. So um, I think you had mentioned earlier in the program that Boone County doesn't have a mask ordinance. A lot of the counties surrounding Boone County don't have mask ordinances. So um, this listener is wondering, you know, what needs to happen for Boone County to have a mask ordinance? What needs to happen? I think that's a great question to our county commissioners. And we are in an election cycle. This is the time when our elected leaders are most likely to listen to us. So if you live in Boone County or whatever county you live in, this would be a great time to kindly, with lots of curiosity, to call your county commissioner and ask them two questions. What would it take to have a mask ordinance? And where did the CARES money go? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. And the, the, <laughs> you know, the answer that I would like to hear when I call my commissioners is, oh, yeah, we're working on that mask ordinance. We expect to pass it at the next meeting. And, you know, we didn't spend the CARES money Act money, but we're going to be sending it, uh, it all to the health department as soon as um, we uh, they tell us that they have a need for it. Mm-hmm. And I think an interesting question to add to that is, what challenges are you facing for implementing a mask ordinance? I mean, where, where, are, where do the roadblocks lie? And how do we navigate those? 
Exactly. And I think that um, if you think that your voice doesn't matter, you should look at what we're doing today. We are opening up our elementary schools, primarily because parents who wanted that flooded the school board members. They are elected and they are expected to be responsive to their constituents. People who did not want the public schools to open sort of thought that, oh, well, since, since that was the plan, I don't need to advocate. And that was the mistake. I mean, I am not saying that opening the public schools is a mistake. I do not know. We are going to find out. Mm-hmm. I think that there, I know that there are a lot of people who are really heartbroken that we are opening the public schools and they thought that we had a plan and they were complacent in not staying in touch with their um, elected officials about that. Mm-hmm. So squeaky wheels get grease, squeak. <laughs> squeak as much as you can <laughs> and in the meantime I'm so glad to be back on the air thank you so much Mallory thank you to everybody who's listening and wash your hands wear your mask um, take your vitamin D and zinc and um, develop a cultivate a cheerful confidence that even if you get a viral illness that your body can respond in a healthy way to it thank you Dr. Alleman have a great rest You're of your welcome. day you too bye that's it for today's edition of Community Pulse. If you missed part of this program or want to share it with your friends, you can find it later today at kopn.org and also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Catch us live again on Wednesday at 9 a.m. with host Jenny Chadwick. And remember that we are in the midst of voting season. You can mail in your absentee or mail in ballot or vote absentee in person at the Boone County Clerk Office, which is 801 East Walnut Street, room 236. Or, of course, you can make your plan for in-person voting on Election Day on November 3rd. And I just want to remind our listeners that public service announcements, or PSAs, are free community service provided by KOPN. We welcome the submission of PSAs that align with the interests and needs of our community, our listeners, and the common good. More information about submitting a PSA for AIR on KOPN can be found at kopn.org slash submit dash PSA, kopn.org forward slash submit dash PSA. Thank you once again for tuning in to KOPN 89.5 FM. Between the Lines is up next. Stay tuned.